Good morning, everyone. Can you all hear me okay? Very good. Okay, welcome to the Tex day two of the Texas Tribune Festival. Thank you guys for showing up here this morning. Uh, my name is Matthew Watkins. I'm the uh, higher education reporter for the Tribune. And uh, the panel you are at right now is called Ballpark Figures in Co Inside College Sports. We're going to be talking about the, the, the money in college sports um, in Texas and across the country. Uh, a little just uh, housekeeping items before we start this morning. I wanted to just let you know right now you're in the uh, Texas Tribune Presents track. So in this room throughout the day, you're going to be seeing different panels about projects, uh, areas of focus that the Tribune has, has worked on in the past year. Um, you know, if you're, if you're in here because you're interested in higher ed, we also have an education panel uh, elsewhere in this room. And... Uh, uh, a interview with Ken Starr coming up here after, uh, after this panel at the AT&T conference room. Um, we uh, are in a few different venues across the campus today, and if you're trying to get between venues, especially if it's raining, be aware that there's a shuttle that you can jump on and, and ride between areas. We'll be doing lunch at the main mall under the tower. There's going to be some food trucks there where you can grab lunch. And at the end of the day at the AT&T Center where you uh, likely picked up your badge, um, we will be having a, a reception uh, before, I guess, the night's events, which we have uh, a trivia event at uh, Schultz Garden, if you're interested in showing up for that, too. Um, for this panel, we're going to do about 40 minutes of uh, discussion up here among us, and then I'll give a little bit of a warning, and if you want to come up and uh, ask a question, we've got these two microphones here, and we'll leave a few minutes for that as well. Um, and let me go ahead and just introduce the panel here. Um, we've got Sonia Richards-Ross, an Olympic gold medalist and former NCAA champion who ran track at UT. Um, she's the founder of the Sonia Richards Fast Track Program, which benefits children in her native Jamaica. Um, Joe Nocera is a columnist for the New York Times. Um, he's written extensively about the business of college sports in the NCAA. He's the author of this book, Indentured, Inside the Rebellion Against the NCAA. And let's see here. We've got uh, Renu Couture, who is president and chancellor of the University of Houston and its governing system. Her tenure began in 2008, and uh, she's overseen record-breaking enrollment and research uh, funding at the university. Lately, um, as she pointed out to us this morning, she is the, uh, she now also oversees the, uh, what she said was the clear number one football team in the state of Texas. <laughs> Hmm. So, yeah, maybe a controversial hmm. opinion here. We can debate that. There's so many other topics we can debate. I'm just going to leave. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right now you can look any polls, of course. Right. I mean, I don't have to say anything. I don't want to the say polls, The polls do yeah, back sorry, that up. But this week, right now, I'm sitting right now. And we've got Darren K. Roberts, founding director of the Center for Sports Leadership and Innovation at UT. Um, he's a former uh, college and NFL coach and lectures in the humanities at UT. I understand you, uh, you teach a lot of uh, UT athletes. Yeah, so every uh, freshman athlete. Yeah. That's right. So uh, thank, thank all of you for being here. I, we really appreciate it. Um, Chancellor Couture, I want to start with you uh, because as we discussed, your football team is hot right now. And, and the discussion of the business of college sports, University of Houston is, is a big newsmaker these days. Um, you guys uh, you know, have made no secret about interest in joining the Big 12, um, a process that is still ongoing. I wonder if you could tell me you know, why that is something you're pursuing and kind of what your pitch is to the conference as 
as you, you go through this process. Okay, so let me just give a disclaimer that I am under confidentiality statement that I've signed, so I can't tell about you know, any, any of those things, but whatever I can tell you is this. So I joined in 2008, so it's my almost completing my nine years. And uh, from that point onwards, we have just stayed on one single path, one destination, and that is building a nationally competitive university. To me, it doesn't mean uh, in one area or the other, it means all across. If we're gonna have an athletics program, it's not gonna be a mediocre program. So we have been um, really focusing on that as one of my big rocks as well, just like as energy and health and the arts. I mean, athletics has been important, just like as a student success. And uh, we made the investments we needed to do. And um, I just want my student athletes to have the same opportunity to be shown on the national landscape, national platform. I see in their eyes the talent I see, I, and I just think they deserve that. And therefore, our path has remained the same. It remains still the same. And none of those things you can say we did it uh, because of uh, any talk of Big 12 expansion. All of these things have been going on for eight years of, of track record on that. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, of course, a decision is made by um, the, the university presidents from the Big 12, and I just, I'm very passionate about the university. I'm ready to talk about it. I'm ready to brag about it, even in my sleep, and I would do that. <laughs> Rest, I leave it to everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> sure, so, you know, uh, as you mentioned, there's been a big investment, financial investment, in, in kind of building up these programs, whether it's <laughs> new stadiums. You know, you guys have one of the, the most sought-after, hottest coaches in, in college football right now who, who demands a, a hefty salary. Obviously, you know, we, we know a lot about the kind of differences between the, the big five, the power five conferences, and, you know, whatever you call that second group, the group of five, the um, w whatever it is. Do you think if, if, a, uh, if an invitation to the Big 12 or another conference of its stature doesn't come, can you guys sustain the, the spending that you guys have been doing lately? Well, um, you got to think about what does it do um, in terms of you know, revenues, in terms of ticket sales, in terms of merchandise sales, because I don't think we are at the capacity where we can be. I mean, we have seen all of that growth even in last two years. And I just want to give one correction to something you said. You said you have a hot shot coach, which is true who demands a high salary, I don't think he demands a high salary. I think it's, uh, it's our alumni, our board, our, us, you know, who feel that he deserves uh, a, a competitive salary. And we, we're just very happy to have him. I always want to have people who have fire in their belly, who have dreams in their eyes, who are willing to go uh, and, and do whatever it takes. And uh, he's that kind of coach where if you look at all my, my team, you know, generally you will find that. They have a little more fire in their bellies than I do. Those are the kind of people I look for. So uh, can we sustain it? Um, yeah, I mean, right now our uh, department, uh, our athletics department budget is about in, in, the, in the short side of the 40s, okay? If you look at the projections, and if I can look back and some of the schools who've joined, so let's say, even if I look back at TCU, which is a much smaller school than what University of Houston is, and the alumni base that we have right there in Houston, if you can just take a look at just that growth rate, and you can see easily, you know, all of those things, all of those revenue sources are just doubling in that sense. We have seen our season ticket sales, you know, have just skyrocketed now. I mean, we, we can see our, our fundraising has, has gone up. 
But that's not it. To me, what is most important is the way it connects with academics. I mean, if you look at those students, the rest of the student body, the pride that they have, the engagement that they have with the university, they want to come and be part of the University of Houston, and they want to stay there. I mean, if we can get them to retain there, to graduate on time, you know, it's, it's, it, the investment is worth it in some ways. But <laughs> if you stay in your current conference, your television revenues are $2 million a year. Right. So, oh, if, you move, if you move to the Big 12, your television revenues are $24 million a year, somewhere, somewhere around there. Hypothetical. Your competitors, the teams in the Power Five, you, you, you say you have a $40 million uh, athletic budget. They have an $80 million athletic budget. They have $100 million. They have a $120 million budget. Presumably, student fees are subsidizing some of your, some of your athletics. Mm -hmm. So then the question, I mean, I think it's a, you, you've got Cincinnati, you've got Memphis, you've got Connecticut, you've got you guys all yearning to be in a Power Five for one reason, because they can get television money that they wouldn't otherwise be able to get in the... Um, sad conference that they're in now. So you say you can sustain it, and you can right now. Houston is hot. But um, if you don't get into a Power Five conference, you will be always financially um, behind the eight ball. See, I, I, I don't agree with that. And first of all, I'm not in a sad conference. OK, I'm proud to, to be uh, going to these, all these major cities. So I mean, I, I want to defend the conference where we are, we are playing. I'm a very loyal person that way. Now, let's, let's talk about it. Is that the only reason? That's not. If you look at the University of Houston and Oklahoma game, I mean, that was a packed stadium of 70,000. So to say that if I'm playing here, or team is playing a team, that people don't necessarily are familiar with. It's not getting the same kind of crowd that if you bring in Texas Tech. When we brought in Texas Tech, I mean, I guarantee you, if we play any of these teams, the UT, these are traditional rivalries, every single time we can pack the stadium here. So I don't think it is right thing to say that the conference revenue is the only thing. Even in TCU's case, you can remove the conference revenue and you can still see rise in everything else that adds to the athletics budget. So our projections are we'll have probably athletics budget that will go touch about $80 million you know, very quickly. It could, go, it could go farther because we are in Houston. I mean, there are our alumni base, huge alumni base, and over 150,000 alumni are right there. So I think there's a lot of potential we have to look at holistically on what it can mean for the university. Darren, I'm going to ask you, you know, since at the Tribune, we've, we've looked at some of the finances of the, the programs in, in Texas, the, the FBS programs, the Division I programs, um, since 2008, which uh, uh, coincidentally is when Dr. Couture uh, took over. The uh, amount of student fees among all those schools that were going towards athletics has doubled to $57 million per year. The amount of money... Um, what, what some would call subsidies, um, the, you know, what the NCAA calls institutional transfers, you know, money kind of from the university side to the athletics department is now $40 million a year in these schools. You know, it's less UT, it's less here, because as we've discussed, they make a ton of money from TV, from ticket sales and things like that. Do you have any concern about that those level of dollars going from students from tuition revenue from state revenue into athletics? Yeah, so, so nationally, <clears throat> you're looking at about $120 million going mandatory student fees. Um, 
I coached at West Virginia. The first year we were there we were in the Big East, and then we transitioned into the Big 12. Um, I, I think what is, is somewhat problematic is that we are supporting a system in which there is a real separation between athlete and non-athlete. So like you mentioned, I, I, I teach a class to every freshman athlete. And the experience of a freshman football player at the University of Texas versus a freshman anthropology major is very different. I say, you know, the football player wakes up in a dorm. He lives on the floor with only other football players. He goes to class. He goes to workouts. He eats at a separate facility, right? He goes back to practice, watches some tape. He goes back to the dorm where he lives with other football players. I think that's troubling. And I think what we've seen is from the classes that there are many students who feel that there is, um, they are somewhat resentful of this separation between athlete and and non-athlete. Um, I'm a supporter of athletics in theory, but I do think in practice, especially at some of the major institutions, there tends to be this almost quasi-segregated system in which you have athletes on two, athletes and non-athletes on two very different tracks. And I'm not sure that that is, is extremely beneficial to the athletes or the non-athletes. Well, I wanna ask our athlete about this. I mean, you know, I, I was reading in the Daily Texan when you spoke earlier this week to a student group, and you described uh, your husband who was on the football team, mm -hmm. right? Um, you said that your time at UT was the best time of your life. Yeah. Um, is this an issue where the, the discussion among you know, journalists like us and administrators is separate from what's being actually experienced by the athletes? <laughs> I think a little bit, you know, because to be honest, you know, for so long I've just been an athlete and now I'm kind of, my eyes have been open to a lot of the issues around what it means to be a student athlete. Um, but if I can speak solely to the experience that I had and my husband had, you know, I thought attending the University of Texas and the support I had from the athletic program, athletics program helped me to be the best in the world. And, you know, when you think about all the responsibilities that you have after school and how all those things were taken care of while I was here, you know, it kind of was, was one of the best times of my life. But I do think that there are lots of issues and I do think that there are times when there are, as there's a disservice to the student athlete um, when it comes to what we're guaranteed as far as our education and the fulfillment of that guarantee. Um, so that's one of the things that I'm passionate about when I think about the other side of the, um, of the track. Um, but I definitely will stand by that statement that it was for sure one of the best times in my life to be a student athlete, athlete at the University of Texas. You know, one of the most interesting things that I learned from your book was uh, a lot of the discussion about the, how the NCAA governs the tutoring, the academic process for the universities. And uh, the, I can't call it the exact uh, who, who this was, but there was an, an athlete, I believe, who received, you know, some edits from a tutor on one of, one of his papers and the NCAA um, you know, considered that an improper benefit for the university because the, that kind of tutoring isn't available to uh, other, uh, other students on campus. Even though another student could go to a university writing center and get you know, that same kind of advice. Um, you know, it, 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 uh. <laughs> <laughs> Um, 
the NCAA lacks uh, compassion and common sense. It's a rules-based organization that really doesn't care that the people that they're punishing are 18 years old. Um, and uh, most, many of the rules are designed for the benefit of coaches and teams and universities rather than the students themselves. The classic example, which I think will change because it's so offensive, is the transfer rule. If you're a music student at the University of Texas and you decide that you want to go to Stanford instead for your piano because there's a better piano teacher there, nobody says, well, the piano teacher at UT taught you so much, so you can't go. You have to sit out a year. But a football player is, uh, has to sit out a year unless the coach gives him a waiver. And not only that, the coach can say, well, you can go to this school, but not that school. Now, how is that right? Um, my whole thing, I believe, player, I believe football and basketball players should be paid. And that comes out of uh, my, my core view, which is that uh, athletes are deprived rights that every other student and every other American uh, has. And that their actions are unfairly and appropriately controlled by the NCAA and by the universities. Um, and that they're deprived their economic rights as well. That a lot of these players will never be pros. They have a tiny window to make money from their athletics and, and they are deprived of that. On the other hand, if you're Katie Ledecky, and you're in the Olympics, and you take home $325,000, that's, that's how much she took home from the USOC, the NCAA rules, well, she's still an amateur. How does that work? But if you took $10 from a booster at the University of Houston, you'll be punished by the NCAA. It makes no sense. Chancellor Couture, I, don't, I actually don't know how you, where you stand on this issue. What, do you, what, are your, what do you think? She's not going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Never. Maybe you and I should have lunch. I, no. In a quarantine room. <laughs> no. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, of course, every viewpoint is, is a valid viewpoint, so I'm not dismissing that. But um, I, I think uh, uh, on the issue, of uh, whether a student athlete should be paid or not. I think there, you know, right now that discussion is going on. I mean, there are certain benefits that, that, that come with that. But I think if you want to have that conversation, it should be some other university president here because we just now discussed how much subsidy we institution is giving and all that. So you don't make really any money. So we're in a different boat. But I, I think there's, a, there's, a, the, 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 there's an argument, justifiable arguments on both sides. Well, let me ask you about, you know, the. Um, the situation you're in, you know, and going back a little bit to the kind of the money that's going into the university or coming from the university into the program. Um, our, when I go to, you know, higher education committee meetings in the Capitol, when I hear the governor speak, um, when I hear other higher education leaders in the state speak, one of the big concerns that is raised is that we're losing a ton of students um, who are, who are high school students who are graduating from high school and going to other schools out of state. They're going to the University of Oklahoma or the SEC schools and things like that. And, you know, this is just personally a theory, but I would bet that one of the reasons that is is because they want to go to that kind of NC, that jock school atmosphere. They want to be able to go to the tailgate outside the football games and, and go to, you know, big primetime games and things like that. So when people question that amount of money, 
I mean, you know, I guess the, the thing everyone says, right, is that the athletics are the front porch of the university. I mean, how is it is it worth it to be to be spending that kind of money? Is it could that be going to better uses? What do you think? Of course, I mean, there are, you, you, we can debate about that, but here's the thing, we already determined that our athletics budget is still very small. So there is no correlation between having a nationally relevant team and sort of having a huge big budget. I mean, it helps, budget helps, but it's not necessary. Okay, does it help? So when after winning Peach Bowl last year, when we started our admissions process, we had 30% increase in, in applications. Does it help? Yeah, it makes things easier for us. But that's not everything. I still keep coming back. Part of that engagement, the student pride, that was part of my nine-point plan eight years ago when we didn't have a good athletics team as to what is, would it take to really build a campus that becomes a destination campus that engages the students, that gives pride to students. And two things were very clear at that time also, which is we're going to have a winning athletics program and we're going to be having pride in our color. So, I mean, you can come to University of Houston campus every Friday, Red Fridays, and you will find the whole campus red, I mean, which wasn't the case. All I'm saying is these are, somebody can argue these are symbolic things, trivial things, but they do make a difference. So last year, University of Houston <coughs> received Phi Beta Kappa, okay? Now that is for a school that historically was known as a commuter school, a school that's in a metropolitan area that is the second most diverse research university. <coughs> I mean, for us to get Phi Beta Kappa is a, is a big academic achievement. You know? So what I'm saying is all of these things go together and there is a connective, connectivity and I understand the connectivity between athletics and academics. I wanna find the right balance, wanna you know, do the right for our student athletes, but also for the rest of the students. True. Um, I guess though you could argue, and I, I'm sure at least one person on this stage would argue that you know, just because the athletics are give, are creating, you know, value for the university, not just in terms of monetary value, but in terms of how the school is perceived and things like that, doesn't necessarily mean that, and it might even be an argument for why the students should be compensated more or in a different way. Darren, you you meet, you know, like you said, you you teach all the the freshman athletes at UT. Do they? talk about this? Do they feel like they are being exploited in any way? You know, I can't speak for them, and I think it's, I think it's interesting, right? We, uh, I think we tend oftentimes to kind of look at this group, the student-athlete pool as this monolithic um, group, but the, the, the real-wing experience is very different from the women's basketball experience than it is from the men's football experience. And so, um, you know, one of the first things that I do in my class, I'll put a slide up that shows that at the University of Texas, the only three sports that generate more revenue than they pay out, right, in terms of expenses, means football, basketball, and baseball. Mm -hmm. um, and then I asked a very hard question. I said, so, so why do we have other sports? And you'll hear these, and, and as you can imagine, I have to end up refereeing some of the comments. Um, I do think there is this you know, kind of wrapped up in this notion of the, of the college experience. There is this uh, affinity for athletics. And um, I think, though, that the lines between amateurism and professionalism have become very blurry. Um, and I think that's troubling because there are several students who will say to me, listen, 
I am here to play sport X, and I'd rather be here just to play that sport and not have to worry about school. Others want the experience of the degree, but I do think it's worth having the discussion of whether or not there should be two tracks. Um, because I think that there are, there are some who want to self-select into a system where they just play. And um, you know, we have a de facto minor league system now as it is in, in college football. Go ahead. I have allies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you, uh, no, I, I, um, I, I don't really think, I think, um, I think the fans wouldn't care one way or the other if the payers were paid. But I do think the fans would care if they weren't real students in one way, shape, or form. I also, though, I also, though, think that you ought to be able to get course credit, as you can get in dance. You know, why, why, do you get, why can you major in dance, but you can't major in football? And I know that sounds silly, but, but when, you do a perform, when you do a dance performance, you get course credit for that. But you also, you know, theory of dance, um, ethics of dance, I don't know, um, dance moves 101, I don't know. <laughs> But, but there's no reason you couldn't do the same thing in sports. You know, race and football, yeah. um, you know, how to be a coach. Uh, there's a whole range of things you could do. How to handle your money. <laughs> how, to handle, how to handle your money, right. Yeah. yeah, because, you know, you're not allowed to have an agent, right. so you're naked yeah. until you graduate. Mm -hmm. And nobody's helping you, mm -hmm. nobody. And you're making decisions by yourself or maybe with your cousin who doesn't know anything more than you do. Um, you know, uh, to that point, I, I do think we have to recognize, I think we have to appreciate the intelligence of sport. And, and I, mm -hmm. I totally, you know, I have absolutely. The, the first day of class, I'll bring up a, a football player and then I'll find a computer engineer because our class is comprised half athlete, half non-athlete. So 50 and 50. Mm -hmm. I teach it three times. I will have the football player install a typical play. Yeah. Then I will have the computer science major just teach coding 101. Then I ask the non-athletes, non-computer coders, which one is more difficult? Mm -hmm. And it's always a push, right? Right. Because I ask a player, how many plays are you taking into the game this weekend? 80. Okay, wow. How many defenses are you going to see? Maybe 15, right? And you think about the real-time calculations that have to occur. This is a very intelligent, there is a rich intelligence around athletics that I think, um, it's very unhealthy in our society for us to sort of subjugate that intelligence to a lower level. But I think we need to start to appreciate it more and, um, you know, and treat it with the respect that it, it deserves. Sure. Yeah. And I also wanted to add, because you asked if there was sometimes some resentment in athletes um, as to do they feel exploited. Um, and I think that, you know, having had a husband who played collegiately and we've been around the sport for so long, I do think that there are times where there's that level of where athletes, because many athletes who play on the collegiate level who make huge contributions to the team do not get that eventual payoff of making it to the NFL. And when you think of the demographics of most of those players and where they're from, if they were be, being rewarded financially, it would make a big difference in their lives and in the lives of their families. And so I do think um, on some levels, athletes do, whether they express it or not. And the one thing I... Um, you know, I, I have a heavy heart about is that when athletes speak up about it, they're somehow seemed like they're greedy or evil or there's some negative connotation for someone who is entertaining a large group of people and doing something at a very high level. And I think just like anything else, you know, people want to be rewarded for their work. And so I hate the fact that if an athlete speaks up and 
you know, it's, it's, this is very similar to the Olympic model, um, where you know we go to the Olympics and everyone else who's there is making tons of money, and the athletes who are the ones that the whole sport sits on our backs, we don't get paid either. So I, you know, I, I have a lot of um, empathy for athletes on the collegiate level, and like you said, the, the amateur and professional lines are very blurry because what makes someone who dedicates their whole life to something an amateur? Um, you know, and that's what it is at the Olympics as the, well. The, the college sports is as commercialized as professional sports. I mean, you can see it. You can see it. You go to the Final Four, or you just even go to a Saturday, uh, Saturday afternoon football game. There's logos everywhere. Everything's sponsored. Um, and, and the NCAA exalts this as the, colle the collegiate model, which basically says you can maximize revenue in every area of college sport except the labor force doesn't get paid. That's what they are. They're the labor force. The NCAA is a cartel that exists in no small part to ensure that the labor force gets no money. That, that, that's how it works. That's why her coach can make three or four million dollars or whatever he makes. That's why. That's why the coach here makes five million dollars. They say they don't have any money, and yet they can pay the coaches six and seven million dollars. How, how, does, how does that work exactly? They all said they didn't have any money, but when, when the NCAA ruled that they could all get cost of attendance money, which is somewhere between two and six thousand dollars depending on the school, um, somehow everybody found it. Somehow everybody found it. How did, that, how did that happen? I want to say one thing also to your point. The, the number of athletes who turn pro, everybody knows this, is minimal. Mm -hmm. So the real crime is not that more players don't get to the NFL or the NBA. The real crime is that so many of them don't get decent educations. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they major in eligibility. Mm -hmm. You know, they, get, they just take courses that are designed to make sure they get just enough B's and C's to stay on the field. Mm -hmm. And then they either don't graduate or they graduate with a degree that's meaningless. Mm -hmm. That's a terrible thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, that's the core problem to me of Division I football and basketball. I want to ask, uh, you know, about that experience. Mm -hmm. You know, you, uh, I would imagine, were spending a lot of your time mm -hmm. training. AT. Yes. Mm -hmm. You still had to balance your academic requirements. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then there's also the financial side, right? right. You know, with all that stuff, I, I'd imagine you probably didn't have time to, you know, get a job at the no. library no. or anything <laughs> like that. Right. Um, you know, and at that time when you were in school, the, the scholarships did not cover full cost of attendance. They just cost, covered your, uh, your tuition, I believe, right? Right, tuition and books. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. So... Can you give us kind of an idea of like what the day-to-day -day life is like for an athlete? Yeah, um, so it is very challenging. And I remember when I came into UT because um, you talk about that um, kind of, you said, in your, you said you love people who have that fire in their stomach, right? And that was me when I came in. So I was very ambitious. So I wanted to be an MIS major because no track and field athlete had ever gotten an MIS degree. And boy, did I take on a lot. You know, I'd be up at 6 in the morning. We had weights at 6 in the morning. I had classes from 8 to 2, training from 3 to 5. Um, and then I did 1,000 sit-ups every night. And so by the time I get to my, my schoolwork, you know, I'm up until like 1 in the morning and back up at 6 o'clock for training. Um, you know, as I reflect on that time, I almost think it would have been amazing to be able to focus all my energy while I was in school on track. And then, because now I'm coming back to school to finish my degree and you know, I gave it the best that I could, but it was hard to give it 100% when I was giving so much of my time to, to track and field. And I had a lot of regrets about not taking more advantage of opportunities while I was in school to really um, get the most from my education. I 
did maintain a 3.5 GPA while I was in school, but it was really, really hard. I uh, had, had a lot of great support, but it definitely is challenging to be a student athlete. And when I think about even some of the people that were in my classes um, while I was um, majoring in MIS, some of those guys were already in the workforce and had experience you know, doing um, what they were learning. It made it easier for them, but much harder for me to try to keep up with it along with my training. So it's definitely tough um, to, to balance both. And if you don't have great people around you, not just in the university, but for me, I had great, my parents were amazing and stayed on me and helped me a lot, but it can be tough for student athletes. This, this is an easy problem to solve, by the way. Okay. Um, uh, college athletes should be allowed to take fewer courses uh, during their four years of eligibility, and they should have lifetime scholarships. It's Hope really, it's super simple, super simple. Uh, instead of having to take five courses, take two. Mm -hmm. And um, you're going towards graduation, and then, and, and a lot of players are gonna drop out and say, I don't want to college, and then 10 years later, they're gonna realize what they missed, mm -hmm. but they have done a lot for the university, and they're owed something by the university. And a lifetime scholarship, I think, would, would, would really help this issue of getting up at 6 and going to bed at 1 mm -hmm. and having no free time in between. Yeah. And I kind of did that with my Nike contract where I extended Ask my... her what she thinks of that. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to hear. No, I mean, we are in the business of education. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the bottom line. There is a reason why we they call student athletes and not athlete a student, because being a student comes first. And I know, at least on our campus, I mean, the, the entire academic advising staff in athletics, they, they report directly to the provost. And when I was provost, I made sure they reported to me because none of that thing, if students want to do that, and we have many who are doing accounting and financing and, and biology degrees, I mean, you know, we, we, we provide the support that is necessary. And I really do, I understand, because, you know, I had a daughter who went, you know, through, she, she played uh, sports, didn't go in college, she didn't play because she went for a six year BSMD program. Mm -hmm. Now I can tell you, she slept probably two hours every night, right? It's what you commit for. Mm -hmm. I know my architecture students, they are there day and night, in the evenings, in the late nights, all the time. I guess what you commit for and how we can balance it for you better, mm -hmm. I think that's the right conversation to have because we are, again, foundation. The core mission for us is really education. The sports is nice, it's, it's great, it gives in leadership opportunity like it gives in so many other areas, other different kinds of opportunities to people. So, I mean, I'm always willing to listen to say, okay, how can we uh, you know, do better for you so that the balance is right, where you're getting some real education and not some lollipop education, mm -hmm. right? And you are getting all the opportunities of leadership, of building teamwork, so that you can be successful in life. You can be champions in life. Because it's not about just those four years, five years, or six years. It's really for life. Do you think that college sports would be uh, corrupted or damaged in any way if athletes were paid in some, in some kind of manner? Well, I think that's a larger debate and discussion uh, because I can tell you right now, people say, well, look, you got $15 million worth of publicity out of what your football team is doing. I mean, my marketing people bring me all the time. Look how much it is. I say, can I take your budget, like reduce it by $100,000 because we're getting all this $15 million? Well, no, you can't pay tangible with intangible. Mm -hmm. So the thing is, you just have to figure it out. What's your return on investment? How does it fit with the rest of the university? And how do you best leverage what you have? So would it get corrupted? I don't know. There's a whole national conversation. It's not just one piece. 
as I think Joe pointed out too, there are several pieces to that big puzzle mm -hmm. that needs to be discussed. Is there how is there a model that you think could work? Me? Yes. Huh. Um, is there a mod? I used to have a salary cap idea, which I actually think still could work. Um, that would allow. Uh, this is going to sound really radical. Um, that would give every player um, a minimum base salary, thirty, thirty-five thousand, something like that, and have enough left over so that you could compete for top players on the basis of money, that you could say, I'll pay you 60000 a year if you sign a three-year contract so you can't leave till you're a junior. Now you say, oh my god, how could you do that? Oh, this is the worst thing I ever heard. There's a lot of money in college sports now under the table. Put it on the table. It's fair. And the idea that a, an athlete, a student, doesn't choose a school on the basis of money is absurd. Students choose on the basis of money all the time. Oh, I can't go to this school because it's 40,000, but I can go to this school because it's 11,000. What's the difference? What's the difference? And the idea that they can't handle the money, well, LeBron did okay as an 18-year-old handling money. Kobe Bryant did okay handling money at 18 years old. I mean, the other thing I think, I mean, I truly believe you'd have to regulate this. I realize it's very seeming right now, but I, I really, really believe that kids coming out of high school should have agents. Uh, the fact of the matter is baseball players and hockey players already do have agents. Nobody says anything about it. Everybody looks the other way. But they need that guidance to make these important life decisions. And um, uh, if you got into a situation where you're, where you're paying athletes, they would, have to, they would have to have regulated agents to help them make these decisions. Mm -hmm. OK, we've got uh, some time for questions. I'll, I'll ask one question right now. Uh, while we give the opportunity, but if anyone has anything they'd like to ask from the audience, uh, please step up and to the microphone, and we'll do that as well. But Darren, well, in the meantime, um, you again, you you spend a lot of time around young athletes. Um, would you be worried at all in terms of changes in priorities, or um... you know, NCAA did an interesting study in '15. They asked coaches and players. Uh, right now, there's a 20-hour time limit rule. Um, so if you're in season, you can only devote 20 hours to your particular sport. Mm -hmm. I coached at the collegiate level. Hmm. It's farcical, right? And every, and every team will submit this timesheet to the NCAA. It doesn't happen. Um, so athletes, current athletes, 63% of them said that they think that travel time should be included. Right now, it's not that travel time should be included in that 20-hour limit. Only 7% of coaches said that travel time should be included. And I always say this, I think our interests are a little misaligned. As a coach, as a defensive backs coach, if one of my players became a first-team, all-Big 12 academic student-athlete, I didn't get a bonus. Mm -hmm. If one of my players made the first-team, all-Big 12 defensive squad, I got a bonus. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so although it seems, I think there is this blurry line between eligibility and development. Um, and I consider myself to be progressive. But as a coach, I know it's very difficult when you need to beat Texas on Saturday, right? To balance that with Jimmy has a big chemistry test coming up on Friday. 
So I don't need to weigh him down with this cut up of 100 plays to watch for third down, right? So um, it, it's tough because as a coach, I'm going to get the next job based on the win loss and the way that my players play. And my players will play for four years, but that post world, their status changes once their eligibility is exhausted. You know, travel is the issue. We should have conferences that are close. To <laughs> I mean, I'm just I letting you make the case. I, I mean, you don't have to travel. She's, she, she's completely right about this, well, even though she, you, even though she has it, even though she has a certain interest. <laughs> when West Virginia tennis team, West Virginia tennis team has to play conference games, they have to go to Texas. It's the most ridiculous thing. The only, the only sport that does this right is hockey. Be, there, there's. In, in hockey, there's a league in the Midwest, and there's a league in the East. Providence and you know, all, all those teams, and in, you know, Michigan in the, in the Midwest. And they, they do it regionally until they get to, um, to tournament time. And there's no reason, aside from football and basketball, that you couldn't do the exact same thing for tennis, for track, for all the other sports that are soaking up all this travel money and, 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 and consuming so much time uh, on the part of the players um, that they could otherwise be spending doing, you know, studying. I just wanted to be noted that Joe and I agreed on something. <laughs> and thank you, Joe, for making our case. <laughs> well, OK, so we keep hearing about, you, you already mentioned that you guys have a $40 million athletic budget. You don't have a hundred and forty-two. Forty-two. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You don't have a hundred million dollar athletics budget. I mean, could what would even happen at U of H if if the NCAA passed, you know, if, if Joe became the uh, commissioner of the NCAA mm -hmm. and, and and passed these ideas that he's raised? I mean, it's not just us. I mean, yeah, if you think percent. about it, this is a 15% of the school, FBS schools really, uh, you know, make revenue, as you call it, if, if at all you can call it. 85% just don't. I mean, it's a, it's a very you know, radical change, and people will have to think very carefully about it. But it's the same thing. If suppose tomorrow something passed that colleges will be completely free of education, I mean, why just stay with athletics? There's a radical idea right there that there should be absolutely no tuition. <coughs> I mean, as an educator, I would love that, right? But then as an administrator, where will the finances come from? So, uh, Well, the, the history department doesn't subsidize the English department. So why does the football team have to subsidize the tennis team? Okay, wait a minute, but history department does subsidize engineering. Okay. Okay. Do you not want engineering? I do want it. And I have my husband here who's a professor of engineering. And you know, I just want to make sure. No, the, the, the subsidies and all, I mean, that's just a part of the university. And we, we wouldn't do it you know, until you know, it's, a, uh, you know, it's kind of a consensus in that sense. But see, right now, at least right now, we, we can show you that with a $42 million budget, you can build a nationally relevant, nationally ranked team. This is, you know, last year we finished eighth, and now we're ranked sixth. But the thing is, if we were playing together closely and the rivals, that's the important things. You have to play your rivalry, rivalries, and that's what generates interest. Mm -hmm. Our alumni, I mean, they are just so close by us. I mean, they fill that stadium, and I've said it from the beginning. If we played with any of these teams that our fans want to see, that half energy will always be Cougar Red, and it surely was at Oklahoma. So you cannot say that things, all other things will stay at the same capacity. I mean, it's hard to get teams here to play when people, you know, fans don't care. 
I, want I, I just want to take quickly on, on the money issue. The thing you could do now that wouldn't affect her budget at all is go to the Olympic model. So the Olympic model basically says you don't get paid for playing, but any money you get from sponsorship or endorsements or uh, signing you know, cards or whatever, you can keep. Uh, uh, and the NCAA has ruled, of course, that any um, Olympic athlete who gets paid by the USOC can keep the money. So um, uh, it doesn't seem to me, it seems to me that as, a, as an easy step that would give players some of, uh, some of the economic rights that any other athlete and any other American has, the least you could do is go to the Olympic model and say, whatever money you can make on the side, go for it. Uh, we've got a question. Go ahead. and reforms happen when athletes themselves speak up, especially when they quote unquote unionize. Mm -hmm. If, thinking back to when you were a student, if something like that was kind of started on the UT campus, would you feel comfortable getting involved in something like that? It's a really good question. <laughs> and um, uh, in, right before 2012, I, we started a campaign and we hashtagged it, we demand change. And I actually got the entire track and field team to come to a room much like this and discuss this idea that Rule 40 um, was making it very difficult for athletes to make money. So unless you were able to partner with a sponsor who was IOC or USAT, um, or um, not USATF, but the USOC uh, would work with, then you couldn't, during that time of the Olympics, you couldn't tweet, you couldn't have any kind of advertisement. And the numbers were that 90, I guess 97% of athletes were working with sponsors who weren't IAAF or IOC ratified. So most of those athletes were not able to monetize around the time when they were most popular. Hopefully that made sense to you. So anyway, so I did, so I led that campaign with the We Demand Change, and it's really why there was a shift um, where the IOC has allowed for athletes to be able to have sponsors that aren't on the IOC level as long as they're turned in a certain time. So it's not all the way there yet, but it's almost there. So absolutely, I think I would have been one of those athletes who would have been happy to speak up and be a part of that. Um, but the thing is, like Joe said, you're so young when these tough decisions need to be made and when you need to have that awareness around the opportunity that's in front of you that most of the times it's not until you're way beyond that that you realize, man, when I was at my best is when I wasn't able to monetize that. So I think that's the difficulty is that we need people who have experienced it and who are older to stand up and speak up for those athletes who really just don't know any better and are so excited about the opportunity at the time um, but yeah, had it been, had that been an opportunity, I think I for sure would have taken advantage of it then. Just real quickly to that point, I want to bring up the Missouri situation. Um, you know, I know there's, the fact pattern is very fuzzy in terms of what actually happened there with the chance from the president. But I applauded the football players for leveraging, um, you know, their influence and in saying, we are taking this position and we want to see change. And within 48 hours of a tweet, you saw the chancellor and the president have to resign. Now, I'm apolitical on whether or not they should have, but I think oftentimes we want to say athletes should be more involved, but we kind of want it a certain way. We want it to look a certain way. Um, and so I, th I think it's a part of, it, it really speaks to athletes taking advantage of the college experience when they become a part of efforts like Sonia led, and I think we should, we should support, you know, support them in doing so. Thanks for the question. Good morning. I have a little bit of a different question. 
I'd like to understand your view on the impact on local cities, uh, become like development on uh, use of fire and police, uh, on how they support the university programs. Who are you asking? You, it's fine. Or, the, or <laughs> I have or no idea. I never thought about this. Uh, I know what it does for local communities, like uh, you know, College Station and uh, any any. You know, I was at Clemson last week and. Uh, Pretty much the whole city comes out. Um, but in terms of, I, I really have no idea about fire and police and, and, and uh, things like that. She, she might. <laughs> on the impact on the city, I, you know, it, of course, we are now being in Houston. I just say always that Houston is not even a city, it's a state, because now the population of Houston is more than, uh, larger than 35 states in the United States of America. It has definitely galvanized the city. City has taken a lot of pride, has come out. And all of those notions that Houston really is already captured by this or that just doesn't even show up because, I mean, our rating when we played the Oklahoma game was 12.8, you know, way higher than the ratings of any of the previous things. You can see that. I mean, 78% increase when Big, Ten, Big 12 played their game. And, and even for that week, it was higher than any other Texas schools for Houston population. So does it give pride to city? Does it uh, have economic development? Uh, it does, because I mean, our Greater Houston Partnership, they've been very excited and very supportive. So I think they, it definitely does have, um, does have connection. And, um, but you know, it's very interesting to me. I mean, I, I don't think you, you'll think about that, but I mean, I did my bachelor's degree from India. India doesn't have any culture of sports in universities, right? So I grew up without any of that. And here I am supporting and just saying, you know, how it is the connectivity here. And that's because my fundamental belief, if you're going to have a program, don't try for it to be a mediocre program. It's just got to build a culture of excellence. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, going to that question, obviously Houston is in a, a great big city. I, I used to work at the uh, newspaper in College Station. <clears throat> and Texas A&M did a $450 million renovation of their stadium. Uh, and it, obviously, you know, that kind of, you know, money, either local contractors or contractors coming into the city uh, to do work on that stadium had a huge effect. But also they talked about possibly playing their games in Houston for two years and the amount of panic in the local community that created, you know, the restaurants that basically rely on those six to eight home games every year to, to you know, move from the red to the black. It would have been incredibly, you know, uh, but, but you know, and it, it is true, but universities bring a lot of economic development anyway, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, we talk about 275 million in athletics, and that's what we've been talking about it. But the fact is, for the university as a whole, we have built the facilities of $1.5 billion. So 275 out of a budget of $1.5 billion of this, you know, either built or financed, you know, approved, this is still a small portion for athletics. I mean, we just, we're just transforming the entire institution. And, if you ask me what I'm most proud of in my eight years, you know, I, you know, everything else is very good. I'm most proud of that Phi Beta Kappa because you don't get Phi Beta Kappa unless you have changed your undergraduate education and experience for the students. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, I think that's uh, one more question. Go ahead. I guess we could leave this room with actually without talking about the cultural issues that we see up the road at, at Baylor or at Stanford and other issues like that. Big time sports, big time money, big time leadership for the panel. I'd like to ask for your opinion about what can we do better 
as all of us to address, prevent, talk about, deal with, assess these types of issues that we see on campus. Well, I think I'm, I'm, I'm biased, but uh, so here at the University of Texas, our Center for Sports Leadership and Innovation is housed in the president's office. Um, that, that was an intentional move in that I do think that there need to be initiatives that are spearheaded by the center of campus. Um, and, and a part of our training, you know, we cover Brene Brown and vulnerability and empathy and, and fostering healthy relationships with our student athletes. I think that as we increase money to build dorms and, and protein bar, you know, shake uh, counters and all of the amenities that we want to show recruits when they come onto campus, I think we need to also increase the, the spending uh, for the developmental programs. And I mean something more consistent than the typical training camp, don't do drugs talk, you know, the litany of speakers we bring in, it needs to be built into the annual programming in a very intentional way. I think it is changing actually slowly. Um, you know, would Ken Starr have gotten fired 10 years ago or 15 years ago um, for looking the other way as the, as the football with this series of um, sexual assaults on campus? Um, I suspect the answer is no. And uh, now um, th there's a lot more attention brought. I mean, Jameis Winston didn't, um, obviously wasn't prosecuted and, and, and maybe, maybe should have been, maybe shouldn't have been, but, and, and, uh, but it became a big deal, the fact that uh, the police had basically looked the other way. It became a really big deal. And um, I think as these things continue to be a big deal, uh, or as universities start to take this more seriously and players get you know, you know, booted off campus or get arrested even, um, I, I think it's in the process of changing. So the two institutions mentioned today, at least by name, or maybe more than two, but two, Missouri and Baylor, both, it wasn't really just the athletics issue, right? The boundaries didn't <coughs> end there. It was really an institutional issue. So as university president, you know, I, I know anything can come and hit you from any side. I mean, you can never be absolutely sure that things are good. <coughs> but Every opportunity that I get, I try to set that tone that the expectations are these and I'm not tolerating any kind of you know, behavior of this type from here or there. You put all kinds of programs, trainings, you put all kinds of institutional control, but at the end of the day, it's the people. A lot of time, people would not seek the help that they should, would not report what they should, or you know, if then they do that, the people who are responsible would just not respond to it. So, you have to you know, set that tone, that cultural expectations. And I think Joe is right that I can see definitely in my eight years, the attention that's being paid to that particular part of the culture is just very strong. And the investments that we have made in terms of people, in terms of uh, you know, the, the programming and training has just really grown substantially. So I hope, I pray every day that none of that happens because even one incident is one too many. And on that individual, it's a life-devastating thing. You just never want any of that experience on your campus. Okay. Well, we've, we've gone past our time. So thank all of you. That was a great discussion. Thank you. Thank you.